0: Hey PhD Viz listeners, I'm Dr. Zainyao and introducing the second half of the conversation I had with Dr. Liz Wayne about my new book, Disaffected and as one half of ph is representing the humanities it's a real pleasure to introduce the second half talking more about how i use my positionality to think about this long history about feeling and action and social progress and talking about our friendship i think in really important interesting ways and what it means to study be an object to study and being an authority to study and how all research is really me-search if you think about it and approach it in ways that could be critical and I think useful. Also, what's cool is this is a great idea that Liz had as we we're having this conversation. We have edited out a little section where we delve into the backstory behind the coda of my book. And it's how we have ended up having this really difficult conversation um, years ago about our friendship and the podcast. And I'm really grateful to Liz because it helped me grow and it surprisingly enough, like it also helped her grow. And so I'm really grateful about having such I don't know, a great friend as Liz who helps challenge me and, and I'm glad that the feeling is mutual. Anyway, sign up for our Patreon to hear that little clip. If you can, that's totally fine. Please rate, review, subscribe, reshare. We really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to buy a copy of of my book, Disaffected, that's 30% off with the code E21YAO on the Duke University Press website if you're in North America. It also works on combined academic publishers if you're anywhere in the rest of the world. And that code for 30% off is twenty-one YAO. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the second half of our conversation. I guess also something I want to emphasize for listeners, like, because we also said it it was very personal to me too. So if the fourth chapter is sort of like this homage to Liz, like the fifth chapter is like my positionality. And I think through Oriental inscrutability as a particular form of like Asiatic queer unfeeling. But I guess sort of the the trick of, of the book is like, Um, All my chapters sort of unfold chronologically for these different, differently racialized, differently gendered forms of unfeeling, Um, and at the end we sort of end with like the one that's closest to me. But Mm -hmm. it's also sort of this way of recognizing that I, my positionality, is so dependent on these existing histories. As I say, I don't see it as a separate trajectory. But in order to sort of understand myself and my own positionality, I have to understand like the way that. North America, modernity is founded on anti-blackness, on indigenous dispossession, um, on these, ty- on different forms of white tears, and then I could see how my particular history as a, like a queer Chinese diasporic subject um, weaves into these existing narratives and also takes them in different directions.
1: Yeah. So, what is that like um, for you? I mean, to maybe I would like you to talk more about. Maybe one um what that chapter is about, and like how how what are the manifestations of this you know narrative of disaffection disaffected um for um for you and your identities as an Asian woman a Canadian Asian woman like I'm it's so funny I'm being so careful because I'm like I'm just kind of trained to be like am I saying it right are these the things <laughs> don't mess this up
0: <laughs> no it's okay it's okay um because yeah so my final chapter again is on oriental scrutability, and I look at the work of Edith Maud Eaton who wrote under the pen name Susan Far and she was a mixed race uh white and Chinese uh subject who was born in England and grew up uh, um, primarily in Canada and then worked in the U.S. Um, worked a little bit in Jamaica and then ended up on the West Coast, and so usually there's this phase where she's sort of claimed as mostly just Asian American, but people wanted Asian Canadian, and so mm-hmm. she really has a really diasporic um, just tra- life trajectory. And she was probably queer and disabled, well, with a chronic, well, with a chronic illness that was never properly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so what I mm. explore in that chapter is the ways that. Oriental inscrutability is, as I say, like perhaps the most recognizable mode, racialized mode of unfeeling, because it exists as a trope. And we see it as a Mm. negative stereotype, a negative trope. But what I argue is, first of all, the fact that it's. Can you talk
1: more about this trope? Yeah, so like this sort
0: of thing of maybe people might remember this hashtag from a couple years ago called like inexpressive Asians. That was this sort of claim that, like, Mm. you know, Asian actors, like when Parasite won Best Picture, Parasite won mm-hmm. Best Picture, Best Director, but none of the actors got any acting nominations. And you're like, oh, how oh. can you have the Best Picture, or the Best mm-hmm. um, Best Director, but somehow like the acting isn't as good? And this sort of perception that like like Asians are you know particularly stone faced and not particularly expressive, and they're all mm-hmm. look the same is mm-hmm. sort of like the, those sort of stereotypes, like not being that distinguished, like being very 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 inscrutable. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so that's generally seen as like, of course, this negative thing. But as I'm arguing, it's more complicated than that. It's also what we've been seeing with other minoritized um, peoples up to that point in in my analysis. Like, what is the point of showing tears when you know they're not going to care anyway? Ooh. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What is the point of showing your pain when you know that it won't be cared? people will care anyway and so for instance in my introduction i go back to you know the beginning of the u.s with thomas jefferson's infamous remarks anti-black remarks um complaining that black people have fewer feelings and it's actually like well clearly it's because you just didn't care anyways and they know that it's not like giving that vulnerability is has not going to make you emancipate the people that you enslaved and they Mm -hmm. know that so why should they give you that um the satisfaction Mm -hmm. of having that sort of access And likewise, in the climate of um, anti-Asian, particularly anti-Chinese sentiment in the turn of the century, that sort of saw Chinese people as being this diseased force coming in, taking away good jobs and driving down the cost of labor, and being these strange aliens that could be assimilated into American society. Like, maybe that was important. Like, why assimilate into a culture that doesn't – was going to treat you like crap? Yeah. Like, actually – The sort of inscrutability can be a way of navigating, creating your own community. Or, for instance, like because of the Chinese Exclusion Acts, like that barred a lot of Chinese people from ever emigrating to the U.S., and that was the beginning of modern U.S. immigration as we know it today. Like the first form of uh, of quota based on place of origin and race. And when year was that? Did that happen? That was 1882. But before even before that, the Page Law of 1873 or four, I think. Ah, uh, basically accused all Asian women, specifically Chinese women, of being sex workers, and so they were already like limited of coming into the U.S. And so that's why it was mostly like Chinese men who um, migrated to the U.S. and to Canada because Chinese women were all seen as sex workers, so they weren't allowed in. Um, and actually, that's why there's all these perceptions, continued perceptions of East Asian men being like less quote unquote masculine according to mm-hmm. a white norm. Because then they had to like cook and clean because they didn't have women in the way that those tr- um, things are traditionally gendered, like back in the home country. But also, of course, in the U.S., the way that that labor is so gendered because they literally did not have the other gender, which is usually mm-hmm. normatively con- assigned that sort of work. They had to do that work, and so they're associated with this feminized labor, and then themselves became feminized and mm-hmm. sort of queered by it. Um, yeah, and yeah. so like I, I sort of think about scrutability in these different gendered ways and the fact that many of these Chinese men were sending money back home, um, back to back to China. Um, and so literally their heart was elsewhere. And I particularly play with this phrase that she uses repeatedly in her journalism about, she says, quote, like the China man doesn't wear his heart on his, on his sleeve. Um, hmm. And like, you know, cause they usually say, like, oh, wearing their heart on his sleeve, like, you know, they're just so open, but she's saying they don't, mm-hmm. but like, it's not that they don't have like there, it's actually a tech, a tactic of, of shielding against a hostile environment. Um And so I think in that way, I'm also trying to push against like a tendency that one sees in mainstream Asian American and Asian diasporic discourse of being seen as the alien. And they're like, no, we're just really American. We're really, really Canadian. And there was like this Mm. hyper, you know, performance of we really belong and become super normative. And Hmm. actually, like, what does it mean to allow the space for the descent? Like, maybe... A response to alienation shouldn't be this collapse into this unproblematic belonging, because in that of itself is incredibly troubling. Uh-huh. And staying with alienation and being like, what is is it, maybe you still deserve rights regardless of whether or not you have American or Canadian citizenship. To what extent you can prove that, because that is also like a kind of game of distracting from the real issues.
1: Hmm. Does, does that in a way mean so that um, disaf- being disaffected is used differently, or um, or has been used differently in in the Asian groups that you're talking about, or it doesn't well, benefit them in the same way?
0: Well, I, it's sort of hard to like. I would it's difficult to say like I'd say like, same versus different because I mm-hmm. one thing I also stress is I think. On the one hand, the fact that oriental scrutability is, again, such a recognizable trope in a way that I think the forms of Black unfeeling aren't necessarily. like I do point out that
1: mm.
0: it's telling to me that both Black unfeeling and any expression of Black feeling is seen as invalid. And so even Black feeling is seen as being unfeeling in a way. Mm. Um, and so although Asian unfeeling is a negative, seen as a negative stereotype, at the same time, there's almost a level of respect because it could be recognized and so I think that there's a sort of, comp- and it sort of speaks to sort of comparative privilege um, of the way that East Asians in particular are used as a wedge as a, and often as an anti-Black one and one that can be
1: complicit in
0: like a white Southern colonial nation, I think.
1: Yeah, that is interesting that it's recognized because there's this idea, maybe even enforcement in some ways of like, don't complain about racism. Mm-hmm. No, don't um, keep your head down. Keep working. Um, and that's both respected for terrible reasons, um, but then also used as, like, why can't you be more like this model minority who, who, mm-hmm. who can be disaffected um, in a way, right? And then, and, but conversely, disaffection in, um, uh, let's say, in Black people can be, in the third chapter that we saw, was actually used as a form, not only as a form of resistance, but survival. Um, And they are not being valued the same way.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And ironically, saying something, being affected also doesn't help. (laughs) And also gets ridicule. Mm -hmm. If you're affected enough to to cry out for help, um, to say that something is happening, it's like, how come you couldn't manage the way everyone else could? or you know, again, there's no perfect victim. So then there becomes a like, well, you shouldn't have been on that street. You mm-hmm. shouldn't have been walking or holding the cell phone or eating ice cream or wanting Skittles, wearing a hoodie, right? Yeah. Um, you shouldn't have breathed. You breathe too fast. You should have breathed slower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't you just play dead next time? Just beat us to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think like that's also yeah. the
0: struggle that in my the neck that. Um, the chapter on like Asianness, I sort of end up is the sort of conundrum is like a sort of racialized Asian pacific, um impassiveness can collapse into pacificity, but doesn't necessarily have to. Like it can be a cover for a type of subversion, and so that's mm-hmm. why like so much of my work and like I end with thinking is like like solidarities that there's a way that if there's all these different forms of unfeeling and type of dissent and dissatisfaction that ends up being a type of a turning away from, from the norms of whiteness and other forms of heteronormativity and so forth. That's how we make common cause. Um, Not that we have the absolute same cause, but I sort of say like there's a type of type of turning away that may mean turning towards each other for Mm. minoritized people. And one of the epigraphs I end with is from an essay that, um gets quoted a lot but i don't think people usually read in their entirety audre lord's the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house mm-hmm. and people always remember like the title line but in particular this uh one part of the essay where she talks about like that part of the work is being able to stand alone and reviled um and then finding others that have also been cast out and then making new spaces with them uh which i see as a sort of space of solidarity and the sort of work of disaffection like this these different forms of disaffection which have different genealogies different histories behind them actually end up being intertwined in forms of dissent and about creating new forms of, of feeling together
1: mhm like mm-hmm. us yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah so I was kind of wondering like then if being silent uh, if being passive can appear to be the opposite of the disaffection, like the power that you get from disaffecting, then does that mean that you what does that mean about using that tool anymore like mm-hmm. I guess if you're kind of mentioning that there there are ways like it can depend and it's complicated mm-hmm. and I'm guessing how does that complication of the impact? or the perception of being disaffected impact the ability to continue that particular method
0: Mm -hmm.
1: or to actually have solidarity.
0: Yeah. And I think this is part of the the problem that say we see nowadays in terms of activism, like that, unless you like say something or tweet it, like people don't think that you're doing a thing. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the sort of perception around it, that, that, Instead, what it means to have a space for generosity in terms of people 's capacity, and that sometimes the silence does not mean that someone has always been silent on the issue, but it 's also to, um, deciding which arenas you're fighting the particular battle mm-hmm. um, and also being able to sustain make your resources sustainable um, and I think that's something also for in minoritized communities that is also important when you expect people to be able to speak on everything, and the thing is because everything is interconnected like Ideally, one would, but you just people don't necessarily have the capacity. But doesn't mean that they don't care. But sometimes you also need to have to not say care about friends <laughs> or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that it should that should also
1: be. She mean, Friends okay. a TV
0: show, by the way, not Friends like. Yeah, sorry, sorry that's exactly what I meant.
1: <laughs> I, I felt like yeah. yeah,
0: like not having to perform a for- certain form of acceptability, but also like another comparison i could think is like in a professional environment when you've had some sort of aggression micro or macro happen against you like we're often not safe enough or it's not we're not equipped to be able to you know have a satisfying response yeah and the way that people think in this hollywood idea of like oh of course you'd tell them down and and tear them down but often you can't you can't take the risk that but that doesn't mean you're accepting it it means i'm choosing my battles i'm not forgetting Mm -hmm. this and yeah. I'm going to be doing the work in another area and work around that person or, mm-hmm. you know, have to approach
1: yeah. activism in a different way. I think, you know, in light of this, I think people, we should really really think more carefully about how we do the activism and the where. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this moment. Uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this. Mm-hmm. We talked about it on the podcast once, but there was this, when you defended, you know, when you graduated and you were like, you were holding the scepter for the graduation yeah. you know and you went on stage and you you talked about fist pumping or not sorry you you were raising your fist in solidarity for blackness mm-hmm. and i remember that when i first saw it that wasn't the, like i thought you were pumping your fist like you were excited yeah. um and i was, and i think it's kind of an example of something where i think um, we always we're like okay let's let's show our solidarity let's do the thing let's let's show support and this is what People do to show support, and then but what does it mean if it doesn't carry the same weight or the same aspect um and then how do we so it becomes super complicated mm-hmm. um, when it was meant to be a simple gesture and a unifying solidarity gesture um and I think it you know in light would this be intersectionality, but in light of all of these different you know things that are happening it becomes. I don't know, more complicated than one person can bear <laughs> or possibly bear responsibility for doing or trying to like represent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess like it's
0: in a way, it doesn't surprise me. And I guess that it's, it felt like it's like I had to use the visibility to do something that otherwise I feel like it would be very convenient to parade me along and mm-hmm. be like, oh, this is the little min- model minority. Mm-hmm. Look how, how well she's doing. And I was like, Yeah. Can I do anything that's like looks a little bit different yeah. to signify something else? But then it could just easily just as easily be co opted.
1: Yeah. You know what? It would be very interesting to see what people did think though in the Probably audience. No one eh, whatever.
0: <laughs> I I, I also accept that that it may have had zero effects and but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I it guess it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But I guess also just to go back to how I'm talking about disaffection, something I also want to emphasize is like, it's also about allowing space for any form of disaffection to have a form of validity, regardless of whether or not it's seen as being like politically feasible, because I think Mm. that's often the way that forms of dissent, particularly like minoritized ones by people who are very marginalized. So it's just so dangerous to do big gestures. Like that's the way that they can get dismissed Mm. instead. It is valid regardless And also Mm. the type of policing around like what is politically feasible, quote unquote, is often like a type of respectability. Mm. Um, And so that's why I think that that's also why I want to caution against like evaluating the question of disaffection unfeeling, feeling and how useful is like actually might be Mm. important that we have a mode that is counterintuitive and maybe counteractive and maybe loses allies sometimes because it can't just always be about not, you know, not troubling the allies. Mm hmm. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, at, I'm thinking about what you're saying, and how important a point that is. Um, <laughs> and almost how like disaffection in the wrong hands can be dangerous, you could have given someone the playbook, you know,
0: I know. Well, I guess that another thing I also want to point out is the word disaffected gets most used, I feel post, um, what post 2018, as disaffected Trump vo- voters or disaffected Brexit oh. voters. And it's usually seen as this property of the dominant, those in power, like of whatever, cis hat white men Mm -hmm. who feel really, um, you know, disempowered, but actually they still have all the power. And so that's why it's important for me to say, like, why why did no one care about the peoples of color who were disaffected? Instead, why does whiteness get all that sort of attention? And what does it mean to reconceptualize the possibility of unfeeling? Because Mm -hmm. for people who are or doing that work from below as opposed to always allowing all the feeling all um yeah. and also the disaffection be the property of those in power because then you've yeah. forced minoritized people to always having to be the ones to operate to in terms of disclosure and being like show here's my pain all mm-hmm. the time
1: yeah yeah it, it brings up this other idea of being disaffected on a personal, individual level, like in your daily life, versus dis- being disaffected as a collective movement. And now mm-hmm. you can. There's different levels, and and maybe not necessary that the ways that you use this to cope in your everyday life is isn't connected to collective, yeah, or like the large narrative. And simultaneously, we should be thinking about who both at the person to person level, like, you know, at the at the lab meeting or at the group meeting versus who gets to be disaffected and valued um, when it's a personal and interpersonal interaction. And as you mentioned, the disaffected voter right at the national level, whose pain are we really paying more attention to Mm -hmm. and whose disaffection, you know is pa- more powerful and why, and we should critique them at both levels, both how people can use it and both who we give more credit to being effective at using it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like one of my, my earlier chapters, chapter two is about like really thinking about on the collective level, um, like chapter four that we discussed is as well, because again, I Iola the decides that um, she's going to, marry the black doctor, not the white, white racist doctor, because she wants to be committed to community and like do community, like community work and the work of racial uplift. But in my chapter, second chapter, I'm typically thinking about sort of these uh, black and uh, indigenous decolonial like uh, revolutions of possibility across Af- Africa, across the Caribbean, across North America. And in that case, uh my, the The sort of what I'm tracing has to do with what does it mean to to shut out whiteness mm. and talk like very frankly about like the ways that say Africanness and indigeneity are not um counterposed to each other or what mm. how have black people been enfolded into settler colonialism in violent ways or have indigenous people also been um, complicit in chattel slavery and things like that, and like looking at those difficult parts of it but also like. Because there's what's I think is funny is like literally in this chapter, I talk about how there's this moment where um, the Martin Delaney's protagonist, Blake, goes to the Choctaw Nation, which is actually one of um, the, the tribes, uh, indigenous tribes that was known for um, actually participating in chattel slavery. And that it was a really interesting choice because like they could have had other choices of just uh, representations like the Seminoles where um, the black Seminoles um, fought along the side, indigenous Seminoles, for instance. Um, but nonetheless, he goes, has this character go, go there. And he's about to talk to the Choctaw chiefs and be like, why the hell are you participating in chattel slavery? And they're about to be like, well, how come you're still helping with colonization? <laughs> and then this white guy who's called Donald duh, 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 <gasps> tries to jump in and starts calling the, the protagonist the n-word and trying to like basically oh. antagonize them and so basically what the to chiefs so is they don't let him distract and they just send him out <laughs> and so like there's a sort of way in which like there's a necessity of acknowledging of course how white supremacy structures so much but also like literally they can't have the conversation while that white guy named donald
1: is trying <laughs> to further divide and conquer that's a really powerful example that is super important. And um, to go full circle back to the idea of how uh, allowing, uh, when we're talking about Black women and disaffection and and how sometimes uh, when you have what, trained to be disaffected, you can take it out on other people, or it, I don't know the right wording for this, but. Some conversations are not meant for all people to be a mm-hmm. part of because they can both co-opt them and make them into things they're not, i.e. like black-on-black crime. Uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. Yes. Uh, but you know what I mean? There's this idea that like um, that's not what's happening and you're trying to distract. And then some conversations should be we have to work through certain things internally um, that I don't – we shouldn't trust that other people understand the nuance of what is being said. Mm-hmm. Um, Or to conflate power, to conflate a disagreement with, or just a painful moment with, with an actual um, systemic issue. Mm-hmm. I, can um, I ask you a question,
0: Liz? Yes. About What did <laughs> yeah. you think of the
1: part where I talking about cancer? <laughs> One, cancer is always used as a, cancer has frequently been used as a metaphor for um, societal ills. Mm -hmm. Um, cancer gets personalized a lot. Um, I frequently remind people that, you know, cancer is not a person. Um, cancer is not really smart. Cancer is really dumb. Let's be clear. Medically, biologically speaking, it's not biologically speaking. Um, it's just, if you have enough cells mutate, one of them is going to actually spread. Um, but that doesn't mean that cancer was smart and trying to spread. Mm. Um, but we personalize it a lot uh, and uh, give it more power than it deserves. But demographically we can look at cancer death rates and overlap them with, with um, red you mm-hmm. know, housing inequality, food inequality, um, racial backgrounds in housing. And those are things that are, yes, we, we, you can out- outline like a city map and you can see where the black people, and that's going to be where the highest cancer rates are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also overlaps with environmental inequality and you know, food insecurity, housing inequality, and all these things. And they get related in ways that some people kind of p- take the middleman out,
0: mm-hmm. right? So
1: instead of saying that, There's a reason why all of the things match and it's, it's not because black people, there's something inherent biologically about black people, but about the condition Um, or that if you gave people good healthcare and you didn't put them next to all the radioactive toxic things (laughs) in our environment, they would, yes, they would live longer. And they would, if you put them closer to hospitals, yeah, they wouldn't come in with stage four. You give them mm-hmm. better insurance. it wouldn't do that. Right. And so some people just skip all of those things and just go to like, oh, these are terrible.
0: Yeah. Like cor- they make correlation cause causation. Mm-hmm. And like, I and mean, we specifically see all the strong COVID-19, right? Because like, like death rates among people of color, uh, black and Latinx, in particular, are mm-hmm. so much higher. And then you, you actually saw this discourse of like, yeah, pathologizing blackness that was like, oh, maybe there's yes. something inherently weak about black people. That and, and in a way, it was, it was very 19th century, because especially the language around lung capacity, that actually was a, like a racist thing in the 19th century that had to do with measuring lung capacity of um of soldiers and then saying like, oh, black people have less lung capacity. And so like that said so exact like when, yeah, the stuff about COVID happened. I was like, this is exactly the same old racism, just rehashed.
1: Mm just Just rehashed. And so, um, yeah, this, this idea of of the cancer and mixing it and meshing it is not new. Um, it is actually one of my current pet peeves. And one of the reasons why, um, it's a pet peeve of mine because, um, it just seems so frequent that we, and I say a scientist will. say things with an authority that we have not earned, mm. um, which is that uh, we pathologize cancer, we humanize cancer, I guess. Or we 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 take something that we know maybe in a scientific context and try to make it relevant in a sociological context
0: mm. or
1: a political context. Um, and we do it without um, acknowledging that we're doing it, right? And we even use SCIENCE, capital letter S, To justify it. And it's like none of that reflects a scientific process at all. Um, We are in violation of all the laws that we hold to be evident and true, Mm -hmm. but we do it with, and we don't, you know, we do it passively or it happens in the field passively. And I'd like to push back against some of those things and say you should be in conversation with people who think about these things. And so um, some of why I thought about how you wrote the book and, you know, those kind of questions are because you do research, and there are ways to present arguments and there are ways to know what is likely to be true or to construct things that make sense. And they do get peer reviewed. And there are accepted ways of um, presenting knowledge uh, in a critical, meaningful way that is filled specific. um, And not like why I saw this on the internet. Um, ram ramble over. This may not make it to the podcast, but it's okay. Um uh, I don't know if you if you saw the science Twitter and that this is one professor last week who was just like women shouldn't be in it was yes, something like anti STEM. Oh my and god everyone, You know, it happens a lot and everyone was kind of messaging about it and you know, one of my things <laughs> that I both felt like I need to read more or I should just write something so I could cite this myself. But there's like a why are we doing this over and over again? We've had this conversation before. Um, it's like I'm really happy that people in my field are going. That's not true. Like uh, we shouldn't support people like this. Like they're they're doing things that are supportive, like from a community standpoint. And I would like there to be more like this is pseudoscience. Th- this is not okay. Or um, let's talk about how scientists use their science uh pedigree but not their actual science training to make these these justifications but also say they use their but because they are a scientist or they were a scientist that they can and let's talk about how that is not a 2022 thing but that is like um that's a 1950s thing a 1990s thing an 1800 thing and let's say that we've done it with every single thing possible let's 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 talk about like the history of how that has been used and how we we can stop doing that. Instead, what what I hear is the yeah. I support you, women in color. I support you, black women. I support it's, you. It's and also, like yeah,
0: yeah. Sorry, like it also makes me think of like sort of like talking to say like non academics who are very taken with say Jordan Peterson stuff, and they're like, well, he's a mm-hmm. professor and a scientist. And I was like, but he's not a scientist of that particular thing. Mm -hmm. you know or i'll just be and it's sort of like i I don't want to sound elitist to it but like like we do have a sort of expertise and like but in and it's a sort of privilege that when people i could see that people who don't have scientists in their life normally and i'm lucky to have scientists and historians as friends (laughs) like because they see that this one big person has who is a scientist of some sort has said something they're like oh well the scientist said that and i was like but i actually personally know many different scientists who actually work in that field who actually say this like mm-hmm. yeah it's just sort yeah. of funny how some people's expertise gets conflated into many forms of expertise but i feel i feel very privileged to to know and be friends with you and many other people across so many different disciplines because i feel like that it it maybe saves me from seeing any one particular voice as a voice of a discipline
1: yeah yeah, I just think this is just so dangerous when you have a populace that doesn't understand the scientific method or um what I'm really getting at is is that we're we're really domain experts and sometimes we don't respect our domains. <laughs> um and maybe we do respect our domains, but we don't There's there's something missing that gets lost in translation, but then we also say trust scientists. And then inherently we're saying trust any scientist. And I feel that we shouldn't just say trust scientists or even trust the science because people will say, well, I believe in science. And it's like, well, yeah, science, TM, science trademarked Mm -hmm. is also, if you trust that, then you have to believe in the people who you know, said, "Oh, this brain is smaller, so they must be dumber." Mm-hmm. Or like they made them like people who made dumb experiments and then came to some conclusions that, about something, and then oh, we believe that for like a hundred years until yeah. someone proved <laughs> right? So, so maybe we shouldn't trust science as if it is something that is just true just because I said so as a scientist. But going, I trust in a, a scientific process. I trust in a scientific way. Of learning new and, and deciding new information. Or let's say I trust in like collective science or the discipline. Um, because I think there's so many loopholes in just saying I trust science. Yeah. It's how you can get to a point where you say I trust Anthony Fauci and they go, Well, I don't understand what he just said, and then you disbelieve everything he's ever said before, right? Or yeah, like, it
0: becomes sort of, sort of this absolutist thing where either people, are like, I believe in science, TM, or the, the flip side is, like, then I, like, I'm skeptical of this, and therefore I can't believe any of it. And it's, like, mm-hmm. actually, you have to do the much harder work of continual critical thinking. And then they're like, well, I'm going to do my own
1: research. I'm like, well, okay. The YouTube but... video
0: is not freaking personal. It's just.
1: It can be. It's just, it's more of a. Um when when we say trust domain experts, what we're really saying isn't just trust them because they're smarter than you, right? And I think that's what people hear. What I would really argue is that you you trust a domain expert because they know what are the, and I'm going to talk in a science way, like experimentalist, what are the set of experiments that we need to do or that are normally done to confirm? Um, or like, I don't know if you're if you're looking at a photo on pho- on Instagram and to is that real or not real? Well, how do you how do you know what things to look for to ensure that, that photo is real? How do you detect signs of photoshopping? Right. And I think as an example, like so there are a set of rules, there are a set of things to look for to tell whether something has been altered or not altered. And when you ask about what a domain expert is, they are a person that for that field, they can tell you what types of things to look for what has been debauchedly proven untrue. And they also are someone who updates their information such that they know the newest technology. So they update to tell you, Oh no, 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 no. Last year we told you if you saw this little mark that you can tell it wasn't real, but now the technology's updated itself. So they don't need that mark anymore. And now there's something else. So you want someone who's constantly in that information and understands how it's evolved, but again, this is how we know what's good and what's this is what's true and what's not true. Or this one is the one that we're not quite sure and you should be more skeptical of this. And that's the information that I think is the thing we should really be talking about and not the... I'm a scientist, and so I said, if you hop twice, you're going to lose 10 pounds. I'm a scientist. It's true. Yeah. Or I read... Or like the guy even... like the. The person who said that women are getting jobs they don't deserve, he cited a paper. And I think this is also why I'm kind of like really in my feelings about it is because just because you're a scientist doesn't mean that you understand how to read the paper, right? So I could I could go find a paper in someone else's field and read it. And maybe I'll interpret it correctly. But there's also ways that I can say I can pick that one paragraph and say, this says exactly what I wanted to say. And then it could not be true at all. Or then I interpret it in a way that was not meant to be interpreted. And it gets lost. Anyway, um, I think I feel worse for students. I remember as a graduate student, um, honestly, any stage of my career, there is always something that would either come up in the news or a new paper that would come out. Like One moment I remember particularly was there was an article about how women, Black women were less attractive and um oh my god how... it was the guy
0: who was affiliated with cornell right
1: maybe Cause yeah
0: he had a japanese name and he had an affiliation with cornell that then people had a tits of because it was like completely it was a terrible stud uh yeah obviously it was terrible yeah. like just yeah anyway sorry keep going
1: no no no. this is it's relevant it's just there's always some paper or Thing that has some sort of authority attached to it, and that people would just go, but, "But Liz, this is what the article says," and it's like, I didn't what, <laughs> you know, that is an attack, basically, um, or like, when black women are never gonna find partners; they're the least likely to do this. Um, they're not as intelligent. The black like black women are women or black people, and so you, I think there's like a barrage of like media that gets attracted by this, that when you're not a part of that a group, you think, oh, this is light. Oh, we don't really mean this. And it's like, well, why are you reading it right now? And why are we talking about this? And like, you really, it makes, I guess when it's about my gr- <laughs> when it's either about black people or about women or black women, and most of the time it's like black women, it's like, what did we do to you <laughs> to deserve a whole ass article about how I am worthless to you? Um <laughs> Like who did who hurt you, right? Why was this necessary? And then why does it come out so frequently? Yeah. Um yeah, it,
0: yeah. It's so petty. Like I guess another comparison that might be familiar to people is like like the way that the British personality, Piers Morgan, really hates Meghan Markle because apparently she just didn't respond to him one time. And, like, that's why mm. he should, apparently he's come after ever since. It's just, like, he did not get the attention from her that he wanted. And that's why he, like, he hates on her. He hates on
1: Serena Williams. He hates on Naomi Osaka. Like. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of. um, It's a lot of negativity that. um, You. I, well, I would say is, like, when I was going through those things, I felt like I had to be the one that. Um, fought hard not to internalize those things to kind of amp myself up and call myself a beautiful and attractive and to, you know, I had to be my own like motivator. And I also had to present to other people as if it didn't bother me when, Disrupted. yeah, when I think over time, it was my reaction turned to anger because why do I even have to worry about this? Um, why, why does, what, maybe my working environment shouldn't be filled with people telling me, um, accordingly peer reviewed articles or just things I found on the internet about that are questioning, like my ability to breathe and exist and like be happy in my spaces. Um, but those are things that are always happening. And so when I see like the Twitter response, you know, I think I, my level, (laughs) my ability to disaffect, (laughs) has increased to a point where it doesn't hurt as much. And I also think I just have learned, I feel fortunate enough to have so many ways to know it's not true. Um, but yeah, I think there's a little part of me that still is affected. I My days would have been so much better without it. But I also think about younger women who uh, I think it matters a lot. And I remember me being a graduate student and how much it mattered. Hmm. Um. or that just because people come and defend doesn't mean the damage wasn't done mm-hmm. because it's not like there are articles that come out about any other ethnicity in the same way um, maybe there are you know in a different context but nobody wants to be the center of attention for this kind of reason yeah. and so frequently um and that that in itself is trauma um that you don't forget that, that stays with you because you have to keep fighting it. And I wish that people just never had that harm put on them. Cause there's only so much trauma you can take before, you know, you just have to start taking tons of Xanax <laughs> for generalized anxiety <laughs> or whatever the, the meds are. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess that's also the thing, like, I also caution that disaffection isn't something you could easily valorize because it can eventually hurt us it can Mm, it can be a coping mm -hmm. mechanism that can be an unhealthy coping coping mechanism like i think it's important that we acknowledge that it can be important for us at different times and to not then feel bad about not responding in certain ways or performing in certain ways Um, but it's also not like an unproblematic
1: taza either Mm -hmm. You wrote about this. I yeah. now this is the part that actually made me feel really emotional. <laughs> oh, really? What, what? What? Yeah, because I was like, <gasps> I know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So, um, the part is it the epilogue? It's the very last chapter before oh, yeah, the end. Notes. A little coda thing. The yeah. coda. It's called the coda. Notes towards a disaffected manifesto beyond survival. And I will say that it surprised me because one, I was like, you actually did it. And I was like, surprised. I was proud of you. I was shocked. And I was like, look at this level. Look at this growth. Oh my God. It was like, come through. Like, like, let's just, let's just sit in this, you know, this is amazing. And I was like, and then I thought like, does she just, is she talking about me? (laughs) Um and I was like, no, she can't. Don't Liz not everything's about you. Liz, it's not all about you, right? And I was like, but mostly I was like, look at this growth. Like it doesn't matter if it was me, right? It it matters that you kind of were able to reflect yourself and to see and you made it kind of like come, but mostly you made it come. Uh, but um
0: Maybe we should explain what exactly is my little coda. It's just like this little thing at
1: the end of my book that's just um. <laughs> <long>. <laughs> oh my god look at me i'm a, okay so i'm a terrible interviewer um, no, you're not. <laughs> meanwhile zion's like can you talk about my, can you please talk about my book please in the appropriate way no, she's getting no, ready for her like book just, like, tour
0: because sure if people haven't read they're just gonna be like okay like just question mark question mark so the coda is the last
1: chapter before the footnotes and it i don't know what coda means <laughs> it's, so it's, embarrassing. Music. it's just a sort of little little like end Thing. it's like but normal, it felt like treatment. acknowledgement it felt like yeah. uh the kind of closing and like it also it felt like a um I'm gonna break the wall I think when I said breaking that fourth wall yes
0: yeah
1: yeah here's my okay now I'm actually gonna insert myself their other stuff was academic and and done in an academic way and then here's the other part mm-hmm. um what I'm kind of curious because that's the one part that well I'm sure all of it was your brainchild Um, but the coda seems like a very intentional, active choice to do that because it didn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. Right. But you chose to, why?
0: Yeah. I mean, basically the coda is me, as you said, breaking the fourth wall and being like, this was about me all along and my experiences of surviving to be able to write this book. And I think that as I speak from my experience, it's also the experience of many other people who've been close to, close to me. And the way that, I've found solidarity, particularly among with other queer people of color, other women of color, um, throughout this time, and and sort of paying heed and like seeing that our experiences are part of these theor- this theorization that I have just walked people through, and the way that like all research is motivated by our embodied existence is just part of the sleight of hand that we do as scholars that that we say that that the, we pretend the research is distant from us and then mm-hmm. it so happens that any sort of research that's not about like you know straight white malness then it gets labeled as you j- just doing me search but actually like all yeah. research to some extent is is and has a relation to the self um and i that was not part of my dissertation i wouldn't have dared to write something like that But then I was like, I think it was near the end of my my whole process and I was about to send it off. And I was like, can I do this? And I think I even asked my editor, like, can I just like write a little thing that's like in a completely different voice? He's like, yeah, sure. And it's like, here, here here I go. And it was also like this point of having at that point been so angry and burned out and sad and sick that Mm -hmm. I was like, I am also out of fucks to give. (laughs) <laughs> Which I think is, is also a form of disaffection.
1: Mm-hmm. And so,
0: like, that's why, like, I think my introduction is way, is something that I would never have been able to write earlier, as well, mm. in terms of I feel like I'm able to come in guns blazing in a way that I wouldn't have at a different time in my life. And likewise, the coda came out of this place of acknowledging vulnerability, but also, like, deeply being like, I don't give a fuck at the same time, and yeah. coming out of that place of contradiction and thinking, like, oh, this is how I've used it. This is how like I've you know, kept a straight face and showed no feeling in certain scenarios, but then like cried to people behind closed doors. Like this is how like I've been managing my emotions. There is one point that I was particularly thinking of you, when, <laughs> I don't know if you saw like when I something about when I wrote something about like when I've realized that I've been having too much emotional armor and I've been making more labor for other people. Like that, mm-hmm. that was a reference to a conversation that we've had <laughs> about the podcast.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. i uh, You know what? We're going to say this for like the Patreons only, this part. So okay. if you hear like a little skip happen, that's because you got to become a Patreon user to get that conversation. Um, I made a decision, Zion. <laughs>
0: So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you got to hear the insider secrets about how <laughs> our conversations fed into the into the book, but typically in the coda. Um, so subscribe if you'd like to hear more. But maybe mm-hmm. this is a good time to wrap up, Liz, in terms of my Wrapping book discussion. Up. Also, isn't it so pretty? Sorry.
1: It is such a, it's a absolutely beautiful cover. And it has the, these gold imprint. And this is from an artist, right?
0: Yeah, from my mm. friend um, Lucia. Yeah, so she's a, a friend of mine uh, that I made in Vancouver, and uh, they're doing a. They finished up their PhD and doing postdoc, and um, Lu- Lucia is like, it's ca- Canadian academia is not, you know, a safe <laughs> space for Black academics any more than in the UK or the US, and so they're um, outside of the academy now, and I think still sort of trying to find uh, what their path is. Cause they're also dealing with, um, uh, a lot of, uh, health issues, which I feel like I could, I could speak of cause, um, she does post about this publicly in ways mm-hmm. I think are really important. And if people want to think more about like gentleness and like black feminist approaches to care and art, um, I highly recommend that you follow her. But anyways, like this is a piece of artwork that she did during the very first lockdown. And I just mm. remember that was when I was working on the revisions to my book manuscript, like the, the final major ones. And I was just feeling mm. really alone because I was alone. Mm-hmm.
1: And then oh just being gosh. on Instagram
0: and just being like, wow, Lucy is just doing this beautiful art series that's inspired by the pandemic. And she had this piece that she called Intimacy. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, this is my book. I like could just completely rep- for me represented mm-hmm. that. And even like our friendship and her being all the way in Vancouver and me being in London and sort of separation and sort of thinking about like sort of blackness and Asianness and solidarity and co- um, counter intimacies and I felt like it just perfectly expressed it and she was generous enough to let me use it and Duke was also open to it and honestly I've, I I feel like it is her
1: her brilliance that's on display and. It is, yeah. it is brilliant and on display. And I hope that she takes joy in seeing this. I, I love this cover. Um, do, does anyone make any money from this book?
0: <laughs> um, I think it's like, it's funny. Cause I remember when I first got my book contract, I sent it to a friend who is a literary agent and she's like, what the hell is this? And I was like, it's because we're not supposed to make money. And she's like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, like, I think that for, for royalties, it's like a very tiny thing, especially as a first time author. And so we're not doing it for the money. It's more like to get ideas out in the world. And something I really appreciate about Duke University Press, as opposed to some other pressers at Oxford, Cambridge, is like <laughs> from the beginning, like they always have the paperback version available that's like $20 mm-hmm. or like around that sort of cost in Canadian or uh, yeah. British pounds. Whereas like other publishers don't have paperbacks until the second year. And so the first year of like the books, the hardcover books are like a hundred dollars. Yeah. So it's just really yeah. prohibitive. And so I think Duke really emphasized like sort of this really democratic approach. They also have tons of sales. I could put my coupon code in the episode description mm-hmm. for 30% yes. off. And so, and that's what's more important for me ultimately still like, you know, people should get paid, especially women of color need to get paid because their labor is undervalued. But I want people to just be able to access this and engage with it. Cause that's what, Is fulfilling for me and I want people to find it useful and to do their own things with it and critique it and add your ideas. And
1: yeah. Yeah. So I hope that the listeners will follow along as Zine goes about what happens after the book comes out, which is talking about the book endlessly to people and going to talk about the book, um, both at institutions now virtually, hopefully going on her book tour in, in the Americas and, um, you know, promoting her work. Ooh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Zion for giving us this gem of information and thank love you Liz and Your friendship is
0: the true gem. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the real book the friends we made along the way?
1: <laughs> ooh, ooh, yeah. You know, I don't. I don't think that's quoted in this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's really cool. Um, so, looking forward to first of many books.
0: Yeah, well, we'll yeah. see. Thanks, Liz.
1: Take care I'll of yourselves, listeners. All right. Bye. Bye.